0: ted audio collective if you want to hear where do you get that this holiday season uncommon goods is your secret weapon uncommon goods is here to make your holiday shopping stress-free by scouring the globe for the most remarkable and truly unique gifts for everyone on your list Whether you're shopping for your secret Santa or your entire family, Uncommon Goods knows exactly what they want. Some of my favorites are the personalized word search blanket, a cozy, soft cotton throw secretly filled with the names and birth dates of my loved ones. To get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash designmatters. That's uncommongoods.com slash designmatters for 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods. We're all out of the ordinary.
1: When I was in design school, I started seeing the world through design and it enriched my life. I got, "Oh, and this is why a chair looks the way it looks and this is why Coca-Cola cans look the way they look and for me fashion has that same thing. It's like, well, you can choose to look however you want." Let's think about that.
0: From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Stella Bugbee
2: makes the case for why fashion should matter for all of us.
0: You're invited to this conversation
1: if you want to be, on your own terms, and you should want to cultivate a relationship
2: to fashion and style for yourself, for your life, because it's part of life. It's really fun. Hey listener, a quick favor. We are conducting an audience survey and we'd be really grateful if you could take just a few minutes to respond. Please visit survey.prx.org/designmatters to take the survey today. That's survey.prx.org/designmatters. Thanks. Stella Bugbee is the styles editor at the New York Times.
0: How does one get to be the styles editor at the New York Times? Well, if you are Stella Bugbee, it has been a winding road through the world of New York media. Stella got her start in advertising and later became the design director at Domino Magazine, just as print was getting overtaken by all things digital. She then led the relaunch of New York Magazine's The Cut, which became a wildly successful online style and culture site. Now at The Times, Stella joins me today to talk about her circuitous journey through the terrain of contemporary media. Stella Bugby, welcome to Design Matters. Hi, thanks for having me. Stella, I understand you were born in a giant mesa with no electricity or running water in New Mexico. (laughs) Yes. Why there? (laughs) (laughs) Um, They were living in Los Angeles, my parents,
1: and looking to go back to the land. And my father tells the story that they rolled out a map of America and sort of looked for a spot that seemed remote and interesting. I, I did then go back and find a whole Earth catalog. I think it was from like 1975. Mm, great, whole that said Earth you should catalog. move to New Mexico. And I thought, I wonder if it was really their idea or they were just responding to the zeitgeist.
0: They ended up moving to Washington D.C. And then moved to Brooklyn as you went into fifth grade, I believe. And
1: uh, I ha- sixth grade, sixth grade,
0: yeah. sixth grade. Yeah. Um, but I understand you felt like a New Yorker well before that when you found your spiritual resting place standing outside Canal Jeans on Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> what happened when you did that?
1: So my mom had met my stepdad while we were living in Washington, and we came to visit him, and I was really into fashion. I don't know what that even meant, but I was really into clothes. I was 10, and he took me to Canal Street, outside of Canal Gene, but there also used to be this incredible flea market on Broadway, right right across the street, and also up the block, and there was Antique Boutique. And it just, I had never seen such a concentration of People, youthful people, dressed up in, in cool clothes, and I thought, I have to just live right here forever.
0: <laughs> I felt the same way about the collection of stores right by Washington Square Park, off of Eighth Street. Mm, all the Capizio, shoe stores, yeah. Reminiscence, yeah. and Reminiscence was my all-time favorite store. And I saved. My dad lived in Manhattan. My mom lived on Long Island with us. And I saved up to get a kind of not quite turquoise blue, a little bit more green in it, jeans and canvas shirt set. Mm. <laughs> <That sounds laughs> so <good. laughs> so there I was in in these sort of turquoise bluish greenish jeans, the same color short sleeve shirt and white capesios mm. and that i just felt like that was it like there was no no higher i could go fashion wise i had a fashion for you yes. yeah you've written that you felt that you could carry the black and white striped bags stuffed with vintage clothes from canal jean up and down what you considered the riviera of style spanning broadway from canal to he- to houston and that everything wrong in your life would be okay mm. What wasn't okay at the time? Was it just being in sixth grade or parents getting divorced? or? Oh.
1: <laughs> I don't know where to start. Yes, my parents were getting divorced. I, I'm an only child. We had moved around a lot. I didn't feel particularly settled. I had some family, some substance abuse issues in my family. You know, it was, it was rough. I had a yeah. bit of a rough time early on, and uh, there was something so soothing and escapist about seeing all this fashion and just kind of fitting in. The other thing is that Washington, D.C. at that time, I mean, I don't know what it's like now, but it felt very um, financially segregated, I'll just say, right? So you kind of, you had to pick a lane and you had to stay in it and it was very preppy. And even then I, I didn't really particularly identify in that way. And I was just Instantly felt like I'll find some people here that will like me for the way I want to be. And that was pretty obvious, just waltzing up and down that particular stretch of sidewalk. And at that point in New York, it felt really expressive. You know, you just saw people walking around in wild outfits all the time.
0: I really had the sense as I was starting my research for today's show that you were a native New Yorker. And I went into my research thinking that and then found out that, no, you were born, in, you know, in New Mexico and then lived in Washington. I just had this sense that you were a true blue native New Yorker, as I am. And but I'm glad that that you're honorary.
1: I think if you wherever you spend junior high school is who you are.
0: I think that's true, too. <laughs> Absolutely. Sort of
1: like that, that's so formative. That becomes you.
0: Your grandmother worked at Bonwit Teller, for those that might not know or remember, was the Barneys of Los Angeles in the 1960s and 70s. And your grandfather always carried around a beautiful Ralph Lauren bag, which I now know you carry. Oh, no, it was Weetan. Oh, Weetan.
1: Oh, so interesting. He loved Weetan, and he was very, very showy in a funny way, but also kind of dandy. You're thinking, I think what you're, what you're remembering actually is a story I might have told you about um, carrying his Wheaton bag always to the Ralph Lauren show. He's no longer with us, but I carry that bag in, you know, just a, as a kind of wink to myself and to him because I think he would have really like, enjoyed attending that show. So that's my, my honor to him. But yeah, it's beat up and destroyed and I carry it anyway.
0: When you were in high school, you and your poetry were featured in Sassy magazine. How did Sassy discover your writing? So
1: I had attended Bennington College's summer program for writers, and I thought I was going to be a poet. I thought, really legitimately thought that was going to be my life. And I um, had a teacher, and she got me very involved in a program that worked with deaf poets and we would translate each other's poetry. And through that, I got into the New Yorkian poetry, poetry scene. Poetry yeah. It's yeah. like
0: it's quite a moment. Did you do slams?
1: I did. So I wasn't very good at them, but I did participate. And then I don't actually know how Sassy came about, but I think somebody saw me there, and they were doing a whole story about teenage poets. So I was one of maybe three or four people featured, and I was, you know, very— very certain that that was my career. <laughs> I was adamant. But.
0: What kind of poetry were you writing? Um,
1: not very good poetry, actually. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, teenage poetry. I, I was, I was really interested in poetry. Actually, I think it's still something I'm actually quite interested in, and have become interested in anew, even in the last five years or so, and thinking about the way that poetry applies to what I'm doing now. I know that sounds really pretentious, but, but it does in terms of headlines and things like that. And uh, I was just interested in in forms. I I got really into very technical, formal poetry, sestinas, things like that.
0: You can send those to um, McSweeney's. That's the only poetry they accept. (laughs) Oh, really?
1: Yeah. Sestinas in particular, the very hard form. But I also, I loved concrete poetry, and I think that actually that's what led me into thinking about typography and was one of the reasons that I ended up choosing design when I ended up choosing design.
0: Magazines were abundant in your house growing up. Your parents had a subscription to Interview Magazine and Vogue, which you started reading when you were young. Um, You also had a subscription of your own to Martha Stewart Living. Um, What did you think of these magazines at the time?
1: I think that I'm someone who very much bought into the idea of aspirational lifestyle (laughs) as a young child. And it was very real. You know, you you sort of felt like if I get Martha Stewart living and I learn how to make cookies and make people happy and have a nice home, my life will be better. And I think a lot of that did stem from the tumult of my earlier childhood and um, wanting stability and and things like that. But I really, I loved imagery. I think there's something about the kind of imagery and the styling of editorial imagery that I bought into 100%. I really loved it. And um, whether it was Vogue or whether it was Interview, which was super cool, or whether it was Martha and Food and, I don't know, I wanted to live in those images.
0: Did you have any favorite models at that time?
1: I didn't. Models have never been the thing that interested me. I was always really interested in styling. And, you know, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about Vogue and thinking about old Vogue you know, later on in my career. Grace and,
0: Mirabella Vogue or no, Diana Freeland? No,
1: Anna Vogue. Oh, Anna Vogue. that was my Vogue. And I think she was really speaking to a kind of perfectionism that had a certain appeal to me at that time. Like it, the, the idea that you could be perfect, that you could aspire to be perfect now. Of course, I know that that's not true. But at the time, it was alluring.
0: Um, I understand you really fell in love with design when you first saw Ray Gun magazine. Mm-hmm. What intrigued you most about that, aside from the glorious typography and everything that was happening in that magazine? <laughs>
1: I think it broke every rule. Yeah. I was a first-year art student at Parsons and trying to pick a major. And I could have gone any number of ways. You know, I was really interested. And, I, you know, I was also studying writing at Eugene Lang. So I... I thought, well, what do I want to, you know, do I want to be an illustrator? That was really fun and briefly toyed with that. But then there was such a magazine moment happened. It wasn't just Reagan, It was Wired was wild. Wired was like just doing the most experimental, interesting stuff with language. And I think, again, getting back to that concrete poetry side of things, I was fascinated by how far you could push language and still have it maintain readability and what it felt like as a reader to be encountering language all blown up. And it just felt like this really experimental rule-breaking moment for typography, for language, for editorial, for creating a scene.
0: Though you really loved fashion, your parents didn't think it was a valid thing to study or to devote your life to. How come?
1: Yeah, I have said that before, but I think I would revise that. I think it just wasn't part of our consciousness. It wasn't that they actively would have said like, "Don't spend your time doing that." It just, well, we if they
0: were hippies. It yeah, might feel we didn't
1: know anybody who yeah. did that. They were school teachers and came by life in a very different way, and and just they were very literary. My mom, you know, has two MFAs and literature, and it just wasn't something that they thought it was a career in. Exactly, they they had no context for it, so. They didn't look down on it or something. It just, you know, now that I'm a parent, I have a little more sympathy for where they were coming from. Like, they were probably just totally unable to imagine what a person does in fashion,
0: you know. You mentioned that you went to Parsons as well as Eugene Lang. So you double majored in design and writing. Aside from poetry, what other kinds of things were you writing?
1: I initially thought I would study poetry and creative writing, as intensely as I studied the art. But what happened was I got into the art and I just fell in love with design, like really and truly. It was like I didn't know that a person could spend their whole life thinking about this stuff. And once I realized that not only could you, but you could live doing that. Uh, You know, you could make a living. It was like a real job. I I kind of abandoned thinking about poetry because it felt so much less connected to what was happening in the world, and I just really wanted to be at the center of what was happening and, and kind of in the center of culture. Though I loved the writing and the poetry, it felt much more niche to me at the time. So I was, I was sort of—I um, sort of abandoned it, to be honest. I didn't end up graduating with the double degree. I only ended up with the BFA.
0: You worked for Kate Spade when she and Andy Spade opened their first store on Thompson Street, and you said working there was a revelation. And when you were a sales girl at the original hatbox-sized store, you felt like you'd been invited into a dreamed-up world of creativity and old-fashioned wholes- wholesomeness. I'm wondering what's the biggest thing you learned from Kate Spade and working for Kate and Andy?
1: Well, every detail mattered to them. And that was a, an important lesson. But also, you know, you have to, you have to remember that in, in the 90s, there was no Internet. And so all your references, all your visual references, they came through hard work. You had to track them down. You had to accumulate a knowledge base that, that was yours. And they were so aesthetic and so knowledgeable and so tasteful, actually, you know, in their own personal lives and they were trying to take all of that knowledge and translate it into a brand, a fashion brand. And that was really cool to watch somebody do. And it was early days, small, tiny little store, and you didn't really know what was going to come. And I mean, and now it all seems like inevitable, but at the time it just felt very creative.
0: Well, it was so different than anything else. There was so much context to the way they were creating their store and the aesthetic of their clothes and the whole Kate and Andy Spade experience.
1: I have so much more respect now even than I did at the time for how difficult it is to start a brand from scratch, especially a fashion brand, and have it resonate with people. And as quickly as that brand did, I mean, Mm -hmm. it was, you know, she had a background in editorial as well. And he had a background in design and advertising. And so, I can look back on that and realize exactly the levers that they were pulling and all the tools they were using. And they had a ton of experience going into that building of that brand. But it was not a sure thing, you know. I mean, that it's an it's an amazing endeavor to take on and and have the confidence to try something like that. And then for it to succeed as wildly and as quickly as it did just speaks to how, how sure-footed they were right out of the gate. Um, And I think I got to see that up close. And it was very natural to them. It seemed very natural to everybody who worked there.
0: I'm glad that that brand still is around.
1: Yeah, and and to see how it's weathered these massive changes, you know, versus the small, you know, indie production that it was initially.
0: You worked seven days a week when you were in college. You also had an internship with the legendary magazine designer Roger Black while you were at Parsons, and you worked on publications including Men's Health and Reader's Digest. And you said it was there that you learned graphic design was good training for decision-making. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that. Mm
1: -hmm. Somebody was asking me the other day, like, what did you like about art school? Why did you study design? And, uh, And I said that I thought, a design education shows you how to solve problems. Like it it shows you that there's always more than one answer and that freeing your mind up for, to have more than one answer for every single problem just makes you, I think, more empathetic to every problem they're trying to solve. And it makes you a better decision maker. You know, it's like you have to make decisions really quickly sometimes, especially in editorial. And you have to have sort of thought through all the other possible outcomes in order to make those decisions. So I think design really, like, it makes you realize you shouldn't be too precious, I think. And working in magazines is a very fast pace, so you're just making quick quick choices, and then you're on to the next magazine.
0: And it's also very subjective. You know, there's not only one answer to every question, but there are many that are really viable
1: totally and that's what i loved about the critique class process you know and eventually i ended up teaching at parson's but i i loved these classes where you would have a problem and everybody had the same problem and nobody had the same solution right and you had to we had to at that time in those kind of classes present three ideas and and have valid reasoning behind why all three of them could work and i saw that process play out you know in in the actual workforce later on but i I treasure that lesson. I think I, I think it's one of the most important things that design school and all those internships and working at all those various magazines taught me, you know.
0: Yeah, and the, there's something so interesting about going into a crit, thinking your work is really solid, really good, feel really proud of yourself, and then see other people, like, blow you away. Mm-hmm. And so you always have that, like, what would that person have done? And keeps you really striving, I think. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And... I think working on different magazines made me think about different audiences. And when you think about there being a different answer or a multitude of answers for any particular problem, you're also, you know, it makes you think about solving the same problem. Like, let's just say you're you're basically solving the same problem for Reader's Digest as you are for Men's Health, but maybe for a totally different audience. So how do you speak to, you know, what does the reader of Men's Health need? And how does the information you're trying to design in that space speak to that reader, you know, and and how
0: is it different than, yeah. than a... Especially with Reader's Digest, which at the time had like a bazillion subscribers. It always amazed me how many people read and subscribed to Reader's Digest. Yeah, it was
1: wild. The other thing is I didn't care about either of those two publications personally, right? I wasn't invested in their content that I was working on, which I think was also a good lesson because I didn't have to be necessarily to, to dissect them as problems to be solved,
0: right? mm mm-hmm. Yeah. So right out of college, you said that you got a job doing the exact thing you wanted to do, but within six months, you realized you did not want to do that job. <laughs> and so you called your mother and said, I picked the wrong profession, and it's too late. Now I'm stuck for the rest of my life. And she said, Stella, you're 22. You have plenty of time to change. You disagreed and told her she didn't understand that you had at that time invested so much in your career. You don't have to tell us what the job was, but was that when you thought you should have gone to culinary school instead?
1: Well, let me be clear. I loved that job.
0: Okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I loved those people and I loved that. It was really I didn't think I picked the right profession, period. It was not that any job would have been
0: the right job for me. So it was working in design.
1: Yeah, I was I was worried that being s- downstream from the decision-making process was upsetting to me at the time. Right, which I'm sure is a relatable thing for a lot of young designers. And I knew even then that the design part of it was only satisfying to me when I had some say, at least, in the content part of it. And I didn't really know how to translate that into what a job. You know, I didn't know how to take all this stuff that I'd been doing, all this work I'd been doing, all these internships I'd had. And I loved design, but I didn't really know how to solve that problem.
0: Did you have that much confidence in, your dis- in design decision-making at that point to feel that you could do the bigger job?
1: I didn't know what the bigger job was. Mm. So, yes, I did. I had enough confidence to go start a company with my two colleagues and friends from college so that I could have a little bit more control and be a little less downstream. I don't know if that was confidence or just willfulness (laughs) or what. But, you know, I— Drive,
0: ambition. Yeah, I
1: I just—I think what you're describing and, and what I called my mom to try to articulate and not super successfully was just that I wanted more control over what I was doing. And I was worried that I wasn't going to get it for a long time in this profession. And I didn't know how to fix that problem. I think that's a a conundrum that a lot of people come up against in design.
0: Yeah, I, I briefly started a company, I believe I was 26 or 27, for much of the same reasons. But Though I had the drive and the ambition, I didn't have the experience. I mean, we did it, and we did it fairly successfully for four or five years, but I was never proud of what we were making because I didn't have the skills yet mm-hmm. to understand how to make things that were better.
1: I absolutely ran up against a similar personal just sort of a lack of, of skills or just even experience in general. Like, I, wanting the control doesn't mean... <laughs> You have the judgment yet, right? So I knew that after that, even after doing that, even after trying to gain control over it, I actually had to go back into the workforce and get more experience and learn from others some more.
0: Yeah, one of my favorite... Anecdotes that I read about you was when you were a very little girl, you went to a job fair and somebody asked you what you wanted to be when you grew up, and you said in charge.
1: <laughs> I could <can> so relate. <laughs> so there's a pattern emerging.
0: <laughs> yeah. So you've had a you had a number of really interesting jobs in that first decade of your career. You worked for Drew Hodges at Spotco, the agency that does most of the theater campaigns for Broadway. I believe you worked on fifty two campaigns that first year. Um, You also freelanced at the New York Times Magazine. You worked at Ogilvy and Mather's Brand Integration Group and also began teaching, as you mentioned, at Parsons. You also worked at two independent magazines, Bene and Topic. Now, during this time, you also got really sick. Can you talk about your diagnosis and what happened after?
1: Yeah, I got sick right after college. And so that phone call that I made to my mom was also part of Part of that, you know, I thought, I don't know exactly how I'm going to work this hard being sick. I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease, and so I spent a lot of years just trying to figure out how to balance the ambition that I had with the truth, which is that I I was not feeling well a lot of the time. You know, that did affect a lot of decisions that I made, including the decision to have children earlier than I might have necessarily had I not had Crohn's disease but other than that, I, I mean, you know,
0: I just trucked along. <laughs>
1: I don't know. Like, I, you know, I, it's not—I I wouldn't say that I let it get me too down.
0: You said that it was really intense to be sick in your early 20s because people didn't understand you, that you were so different and in such a different place. You weren't able to go out and party as much. How did you, how did you manage the ambition with the illness?
1: Well, also to be fair to to other people, it's not something I was talking about with anybody. So, I did, it, you know, if people didn't understand, it's also just not something that I was super open with. It. It wasn't something anybody was open with back then. I don't think as much as it is now. Now I meet people who tell me they have Crohn's disease all the time. It's sort of a common diagnosis, but back then I felt very embarrassed. Why? Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Because I didn't want to be sick, you know, and I didn't want that to define my life at all. In fact, I resented that it was there at all. You say, how did I balance it? I just didn't really want to deal with it at all. So I I just, you know, Todd, my husband, Todd St. John, he's also a designer. And, you know, sometimes we look back on that time in our lives and think, why didn't we travel more? Why didn't we do this or that? But a lot of it, I think, was that there was work and then um, there was time where I needed to rest.
0: Well, you also found yourself unexpectedly expecting twins when you were 28 years old. Yeah. So that sort of changed everything. on
1: On the travel. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I think he also worked really hard and the two of us worked really hard in our 20s. And so we didn't leave a lot of other time for socializing, especially if you count in the illness. You know, there was a lot of time where
0: after work I was tired, you know. You ended up having to go on bed rest when you were pregnant. How were you feeling about where your career was going at that point?
1: I was not particularly hopeful at that
0: point. <laughs> I read that you thought it was a career apocalypse. Yeah, I thought it was
1: over. I thought my career was over. I thought um, I didn't really know what to expect, actually. And I think a lot of people I've spoken to feel that way on the cusp of their first child of radical insecurity about whether or not they're going to want to come back to the way that they had been working or whether they will be invited to come back into that pace. You know, I, I at the time was working at Ogilvy, and it was really intense.
0: Oh, my God. I heard when Brian Collins used to bring in bags of donuts, it meant that everybody was staying overnight.
1: <laughs> I never stayed overnight, but I did eat a lot of candy. Late at night. <laughs> yes. And it was, I mean, like, I, I also really, like, enjoyed that. And I had incredible colleagues there and people that I mean for me that was like grad school almost. It was it was an amazing experience. But it was very intense and not something you could go back to with Crohn's disease and twins. <laughs> Clearly. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: I look back at the pace that I had in my twenties and thirties and don't know how I managed to stay alive. Actually, I look back on it now, I'm like, how is that possible to stay up like that night after night after night? Although it was really invigorating yeah. to work
1: there. And, uh, you know, I, I had David Israel and Weston Bingham and Alan Dye. And,
0: it's a dream I mean, team.
1: Uh, yeah, and Brian was yeah. incredible. So I just felt like I was in a very lucky place. And I wouldn't, you know, if it took a lot, that's what it took because you know, I just wanted to be around those people.
0: So you then unexpectedly get pregnant, you're on bed rest, you file for disability, you are considering the possibility that you're in this career apocalypse, and there you are at 30, sitting in a sandbox with your two children, your twins, thinking you had to figure out your career, which you thought was pretty much over, and Domino Magazine calls you asking you to come in and meet with Deborah Needleman. What job did she end up offering you?
1: She needed a design director because Michelle Outland was leaving. And I had thought to myself, I haven't done, I haven't actually done editorial since college. I had done sort of independent projects that she mentioned, but not at a high level. I really thought I needed to learn that. So I was scared to go and meet with her, uh, but we got along right away. And, you know, I, I loved the magazine. And I remember calling Todd and saying... I think this is this is gonna maybe be really hard, but it's gonna change our lives and my life, and we gotta do it. So that was that, you know, started right away.
0: <laughs> you worked at Domino for three years and oversaw the design of every editorial page. You designed and directed the Domino Book of Decorating, you managed the art department, every aspect of the creative creation of the magazine. The magazine shut down. And you left, and at that point, you got pregnant again. And at that point, you truly thought that you weren't going to do anything ever again. Why?
1: When Domino shut down, that was a very insecure moment, I think, for everybody who worked there. And
0: um, It was just heartbreaking. It was such a great magazine. Yeah. And
1: it was very heartbreaking to see a whole entire staff get um, locked out all at once. That was sort of when I went to work in fashion for the first time. I went to work for Raul Martinez. Ah. Uh, that year that I spent working there, or a little more than a year actually, was my PhD. Let's say. If I have, if Ogilvy was my master's, then AR Media was like a, a deep course in fashion and fashion photography and fashion branding. And I spent an entire year hanging out, reading Vogue magazines in their library coming up with campaigns. And so that was really a seminal, unexpected turn. You know, it was back to branding, away from editorial, but it was just, at that time Raoul was also going back to be the design director of Vogue. So it, was, it felt like this perfect hybrid of the two worlds, you know, branding and design and editorial, some more worlds, and fashion. And it was my first kind of real foray into the highest level of fashion um, and then I got pregnant. <laughs> 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 and uh, yeah, And then I thought I just, you know, you, every time a, a life change like that happens, I think it's very destabilizing. For me, it has been. I Maybe some people are more prepared for things like that. I, I was not expecting that to happen. And I was a little destabilized and things were going great at AR. So why did I think it was the end of my life? I just couldn't, I didn't see the path. I didn't know. I I think some people see their careers and their lives as as a linear.
0: Yeah, I don't know anybody like that. Yeah,
1: I didn't, and I couldn't quite imagine what the next step would be.
2: Throughout history, women defied expectations and dared to be different. Join the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, Massachusetts, to explore how art, fashion, and photography shaped their identities. Isabella Stewart Gardner, an enigmatic figure, used these mediums to craft her image. Her story is rich with defiance of gender and class norms, shrouded in tales and myths. Inventing Isabella features her portraits, clothing, and jewelry, revealing how she collaborated with artists to shape her public persona. The museum also highlights two contemporary artists, Fabiola Jean-Louis and Carla Fernandez. Dare to be different. Join us at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum to experience three powerful exhibitions and women. Inventing Isabella, Fabiola Jean-Louis, Rewriting History, and Carla Fernandez, Tradition is Not Static. On view now through January 15th.
0: In an interview with Molly Fisher, she asked you if it was possible to be ambitious and happy, and you said you didn't think so. (laughs) Yeah. Do you still feel that way?
1: I think that the last couple years have been a real reckoning with ambition. Culturally, the whole culture has looked at what we think of as acceptable amount of hours to work mm-hmm. acceptable amount of time to spend with work whether work is work your family or is work work you know and and these we've thought a lot more about boundaries than i think we ever did when i was coming up in yeah. in any of the professions that i i got to work in so yeah, I think I would revise that. <laughs> yeah, there's a certain amount of misery that comes with ambition because it's you're just always wanting something. You, yeah, know, you, you always want, want a little more. bit more. You want, yeah. you, whether you want it for yourself or you want it for the project or you want it for the world, it, yep. You you know, that's a good thing, right, to always be striving to to try to get something better or you know, be you know, make something better, bring something out of a group of people, whatever it is. May leave you a little wanting in the end, because you you never quite achieve the ideal, but I'm trying to be both <laughs> try to be both happy and ambitious though yes.
0: same same yes. yeah,
1: but i think I think culturally we've adjusted our expectations a little bit as a whole entire culture, and that's been really interesting and I think healthy and good, yeah, actually,
0: I do too. Yeah. I think there's something really wonderful about the idea that you don't have to go into the office every single day,
1: yeah, or just like the the horizon for what's possible, you know, when you have a pandemic or you have, we we had to shut down for so long. That had never happened in my lifetime, and it raised all these questions. Like, well, what is the horizon for success of anything? Like, of a project, of a lifetime, of a relationship, of a a job. If you have to put everything on hold for two years, well, that just stalls everything that you you thought you were going to be doing, and. Maybe that was okay, and it gives you a moment to reconsider what you should be thinking the horizon is for, some, mm-hmm. for something. I don't know if I'm making any sense. Yeah, but no, like, absolutely. That adjustment or the correction we are now in because of the ability to take that adjustment, I think was really one of the most important things that's happened in, in my lifetime to the whole world. I can't think of anything that's had that big of an impact on how we think about time mm-hmm. and how we spend it.
0: During COVID, I remember, or during the, the roughest moments of COVID, I remember thinking, I'm changing my life. I'm, I'm going to do things differently. I'm having different priorities. I'm going to organize my time in a different way. And that didn't last.
1: What have you held on to?
0: The desire to do it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I felt a, a pretty profound change in, in that horizon. Mm-hmm. I think it's okay to take a little bit longer to do things. It's okay to be kinder up to yourself and others about the time it takes to do things. And I think that's helping balance that thing that you're talking about: is ambition yeah. and happiness. Because I think that that's really the tension mm-hmm. is the time frame.
0: Yeah, and 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 I'm also aware of when I feel really happy, mm-hmm. and it's very rarely centered around achievement. That's good. (laughs) Yeah. So the knowledge is power, right? (laughs) So let's talk about The Cut for a little bit. You started working at the New York Magazine's The Cut as a consultant in 2011, first to help relaunch New York Magazine's Digital Vertical. You ended up agreeing to join as the editorial director the next year. And in the 10 years you were there, you essentially reconstructed what was originally a Fashion Week blog and created a full-fledged magazine brand in its own right. What gave you the sense that you could do that, aside from just always wanting to be in charge?
1: <laughs> well, so New York Magazine has actually a precedent for a project like this, and that is Ms. Ms., right? Ms.
0: Magazine.
1: And Adam Moss, who was the editor at New York Mag, I think that he thought there was space To push this, whatever he was calling, we were calling it a women's vertical or whatever, into a vital internet publication. I stress the internet part of it because I think there was this permissiveness to give somebody maybe untested a chance. And that was the writers, that was the editors, that was the photo team. Like, it, it wasn't a whole bunch of experts coming in who'd already done a bunch of stuff. It was a bunch of young people, and we didn't necessarily know exactly what the rules were, so that was good. I'm not sure that I had the confidence necessarily to come in and do that, but there was a lot of interest in pushing things, and Adam was very experimental. And I had worked with David Haskell, who is now the editor-in-chief of the magazine, on Topic, which was his project um, that you mentioned earlier. And then when we worked on Topic, I remember thinking, like, I just actually want to be picking the topics. <laughs> 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 it was Rob Gampicro and me and and David and while I was, of course, interested in in the design, I was so much more interested in thinking about assigning stories for a specific topic or picking the topic and then thinking about how to represent that. And so David, he knew that that's sort of where I, my interest lay, plus I'd been working in fashion then for a year at that point um, before that, and it just was a strange job, and I had a strange resume, and it enabled me to pull upon everything I'd done up to that point it let me pull the branding and the you know art direction and the editorial ideas and put them all in one place which lucky so lucky to be able to you know to use all these weird experiences that didn't necessarily add up to anything until that moment So it wasn't necessarily that I had the confidence, just I had a really strange group of skills that applied in this particular instance. And then I ran at it head on.
0: I found this quote, something that Adam Moss said about you when he hired you. Um, The very unusual thing about Stella is that she has this big, important editorial job and has never been an editor before. He went on to state that he would have been unlikely to appoint a design director to run the cut had he not already gotten to know you when you consulted. And he stated, what we saw then was that Stella was a natural editor with a crystal clear vision, an incredible sense of story, and great news judgment. Stella, what I love so much about this is that you succeeded by creating a magazine and a brand that you've described at various times as a smart, funny, clear-eyed look at fashion, beauty, and issues that matter most to women, that also blends a literary feeling with a punk feminist sensibility. <laughs> like, what could be better than that? <laughs> How were you able to sell that and figure that out in such a figure it out and then sell it in such a clear-eyed way? I mean, that's what he said in a clear-eyed way.
1: My main goal was to create a space where the people working on that project could say whatever they wanted to say in the tone they wanted to say it in. So it was always very much about the community. I used to make this arm motion where I put my arm kind of in a circle and I said, like, I'm just, I'm just keeping the space open so that we can do what we want and say what we want and that we're not being forced into a silo by some advertising category. I think that's really, you know, if you look at most magazines, they were created for
0: the purpose of advertising categories. And you created this for a certain sensibility, it feels, like an attitude almost. Yeah, psychographic.
1: But, you know, it's I firmly believe that there were people who wanted to talk about serious things and silly things at the same time, in the same place, and that was fine. And I, I defended that urge more than anything. And, you know, it changed dramatically year over year over year. And so it wasn't just that um, I had that vision from the beginning. It was sort of like, a, well, I, I got that done. What else can we do? And and how else can we grow? And who else can we bring on? And what other voices can we put forth? And what other challenges and ideas? And And while that was all happening, the magazine was also you know, feeding me incredible pieces. And and I was working with the people who worked making the print magazine all the time and the editors on that. And I had an incredible partner in Lauren Kern, who's now at Apple News. And she was like sort of my editorial partner on the magazine, on the print side. And, you know, once that came about, when she joined, I think that we all saw the real potential for it to be something very impactful. and And again, we just all ran at it. You know, it was, for me... I didn't want to squander that opportunity ever at any moment. I thought what if no one ever gives me this opportunity again? <laughs> I have to run at this, you know, and I wanted to give everybody else that sense that we got to run at this cuz we don't know that the, this is a guarantee that we'll always have a a place to say and think and be ourselves even with the precedent of Ms having come out of that publication which is really powerful and i was operating a lot on on other publications backs you know like i think you mentioned mirabella the actual mirabella right
0: grace's magazine was an after incredible Rogue. magazine mm-hmm. sassy
1: like these are there was a precedent for some of what yeah. we were remember
0: doing remember new york women new york women new york, Woman. Woman. New york yeah. Woman,
1: yeah and in fact i met with the editor of new york Woman early on in my time at the cut because pam wasserstein knew her and we went out for lunch and it was important to me to note that we were part of a pretty healthy legacy actually and we were just doing it on the Internet for a new audience and building an audience in that space. But a lot of people have tried to do what we were trying to do. And, you know, I, in fact, I have the very first issue of Mirabella. And I got it when we were relaunching the cut in 2018 uh, just as a kind of reference. And I couldn't believe how contemporary it was and how it felt like it could literally be running
0: now. Yeah. I want to talk about fashion a little bit. I love fashion. Um, you've said that from the time you were little watching your grandmother at Bonwit Teller, you remember understanding that fashion was a form of social currency Mm. and that people who had money looked really different from people who didn't and that they were treated very differently depending on what they wore. As a result, you've been fascinated with the way in which fashion and power overlap and the way in which fashion and self-expression overlap. So my question is, how have you incorporated expressing that fascination in the way you approach fashion and fashion journalism?
1: hmm I think that a lot of fashion journalism is prescriptive, or at least it has been historically. And exclusionary. That's why a lot of people have resentment toward fashion. They feel talked down to and excluded. Whether it's because they don't fit in the clothes or they can't afford the clothes or they're, you know, for some reason excluded. It's an industry and an art form that thrives on hierarchy (laughs) and caste systems almost. And I don't like that, that about it at all. I sort of reject that. And I kind of want everybody to feel like it's something that they can and should embrace for themselves the way they would enjoy food or the way they would enjoy a great book or music so that it's a very personal, approachable part of your life, you know. And to go back to being in design school, for example, when I was in design school, I started seeing the world through through design and it enriched my life. Like, oh, and this is why a chair looks the way it looks and this is why Coca-Cola cans look the way they look. And for me, fashion has that same thing. It's like, well, you can choose to look however you want. Let's think about that. You know, and I would hope that certainly at The Cut and perhaps less so at The Times just because of what we're doing at The Times. It's very, very different. But I really wanted to start to like open up a conversation for people and say, you're invited to this conversation if you want to be on your own terms, and it's fun, and you should want to cultivate a relationship to fashion and style for yourself, for your life, because it's part of life. It's really fun. So a bit of like taking away that power that fashion tends to have over people
0: because it makes them feel excluded. That was important to me. One of the things that I've loved in quite a lot of your fashion coverage over the years is how you sort of democratize some of what we think about when we think about fashion and also the range that you, in the way that you put things together. But I really loved how obsessed you were for a little while there with Birkenstocks. Mm -hmm. And this was before Birkenstocks were back being Birkenstocks. And I loved that you embrace both high and low at the same time. And it's not just a matter of here we're going to go high, here we're going to go low. It's you can match this up way however way you want to as long as you feel good and comfortable in whatever you're doing.
1: I mean, I think one of the things that we were told, like the magazines that I absorbed and loved so much that were so aspirational and exclusionary as a child didn't always allow you to hold the complexity of the high and the low of wanting to both talk about fashion and politics, of wanting to be able to indulge in something expensive, but also wear Uniqlo. Those complexities, those dichotomies, those contradictions are life. It's what everybody has inside of them. And I think I was really interested in just letting all those things exist together. And I think that that's when fashion becomes meaningful to people. Like one of the reasons why I cover the red carpet and what I think is interesting about, let's say, a red carpet event is that's where most people see the highest fashion come alive. It's where they understand a gown. It's not on a runway. And it's not in their closet. It's on their favorite star, wherever, you know, movie star, musician, reality TV star, whomever it is. And that's a very fun space, you know. I mean, it's not stupid. It's very fun. It's very important that we think about the ways in which those intersections happen. So I was very interested in collapsing some of the hierarchy around what was good and what was bad, what was high, what was low, what was accessible, what was off-limits,
0: and to whom. That's really important. Is there a difference in covering a Met Gala versus going as a guest to the Met Gala?
1: Oh, Sure. Definitely. In what way? Well, I've never been a guest at the Gala, (laughs) to be clear. (laughs) I mean, I think the most interesting thing for me about working at the New York Times is really thinking about those differences. Mm -hmm. What is the difference between covering? What is the objectivity that you bring as a reporter or an editor at the Times? You know, how does that change your relationship to power, to the people in the room? How do you hold those people accountable when you know they're not being honest? How do you? How
0: do you? How do you do that?
1: By keeping yourself not a guest at the mm. Met Gala, you know you have to be a little bit outside of that, and that's the price that you have to pay. You know, you you know get to sit in the room and enjoy some of those spoils. However, you have
0: you see what's really going yes. on. Which... So
1: it's a real, you know, that that kind of dynamic. You know, once you're once you're a guest at the table, you can't be a journalist. How
0: do you decide what you want to cover?
1: At the times, the way the style section works is sort of broken down roughly. We have a fashion team, we have a kind of generalist team. So there's news. There's just stuff that's happening. We gotta cover this. It's it's happening. And we try to set ambitious targets for that in terms of like, well, who's interesting? Who do we think is pulling all the levers? Let's go after that person, in terms of let's get a story about them, let's let's introduce them to a reader. And then there's just like, what is a reader interested in? What do we think is going to light their minds on fire? What, are they, what do we think they're going to share in their friend group chats? That's a big thought that's always in my mind. And I don't know. It's a, There's also just a certain, you know, intangible instinct. You never really know, but you just sort of develop over time, especially if you're really looking at patterns over time of Internet traffic. I mean, we have so much information available to us, you know. And that's the thing. It's like, well, you have to really read the, tea the leaves. Well, you have to you sort of think, well, why did that story do really well and not that one? And you know, what do I what what's the learning from that? And and not let that affect what you're assigning too much, right? You have to think about what you think is interesting, what's moving the conversation forward. And that's the sensibility. That's an intangible thing,
0: actually. You know, before any publication went online, you didn't know what people were necessarily interested in most. You know, yes, you know, can this marriage be saved from Ladies Home Journal and so forth? But now you know how many people are actually reading every single article that they're reading and the direction that they're going and so forth. And in some ways, when you're going through the paper, I still get the Sunday paper, you know, you go through and there's a lot of opportunity for discovery because you're just seeing things as they pass by on the page. When you're online, you tend to look for things like um oh, Thursday night into Friday morning. Modern love will be up. Social cues, you know, you you know when to find things, and you don't have as much opportunity to discover unless you're being fed. You know, you might also like this, which, you know, you have to then to decide whether or not you think it's worth clicking. How much do stats actually matter to you? And I'm not talking about the times. I'm just talking about you and your taste and what you believe should be published.
1: Um, They don't matter to me. You know, I'm looking at them. I'm curious to see them. But I'm not going to not do a story that I believe in based on that at all. We came out of a decade, those of us who worked online, where a lot of decisions were made based on that. And I'm not sure that that was to the benefit of the content always and luckily the times really doesn't dictate what we do in that way which is really helpful but you know there are like I've developed certain instincts I know what I have a sense of I think what's gonna be interesting to people and you know is there tension in the story is it a widely known subject matter you know we just did a story About
0: Barnes and Noble, I love that story, and I love the images. It was so great to see all the different Barnes and Noble styles.
1: Well, that is a design story, right? Right, total branding and design story. And several people on my team were like very surprised at how how big of a hit it was. But I knew it was going to be because I think there's this huge interest in that brand, right? An innate interest in Barnes and Noble. Why it's not succeeding? I think actually people want it to succeed. Right. So what what were they doing? and they're doing something really weird actually and I kind of thought oh, that one will probably be a hit and you just you just develop instinct for what you think people will want to read um and I'm, I'm certainly not always right <laughs> by any means but that's kind of the way I use that information that I get every week is like and actually every day is um just a sense of like People really are interested in in things that they already have emotional investment in. You know, like you write about Victoria's Secret, like people are going to read it. They're curious about that brand. Yeah. Regardless of what you say about it. You know, so there are, there are certain topics that you, you sort of recognize will be interesting.
0: You've written that runway show going requires stamina. <laughs> Is that because of the pace?
1: Yeah. There are people who just love going to fashion shows. And I think they're really interesting Especially if that's your beat and that's what you cover, but the grind of going to maybe like fifty in a row, if you especially if you're a visual person, can get. You have to pace yourself. It gets really. It's a lot of images if you if you're thinking about it that way. I'm sure it is experiencing that just on Instagram. When I'm not, let's say I'm not in a, I didn't go to Milan or something. I'm experiencing it as a reader and as a viewer. It's a lot to watch other people experience
0: it. You know, imagine. Being there, it's a lot of images. How do you feel about your own fashion when you're watching shows or in the midst of the fashionistas? Probably like most
1: people, I have a fraught relationship with fashion. You know, if we're talking about what I wish I could have, (laughs) this is what I have. But this season, I tried a different approach, which was while I was walking around and, and going to shows, I started keeping a list on my phone of reminders of things that I actually like so that I wouldn't lose sight of my own desires and my own taste. Just Mm. to remind myself, you know what? You really like this, and you really like this, and this is a hard-won, decades-long project to develop what you actually like. Don't be too swayed just because everything is shiny. And that's a different approach than I've taken in the past, and I think that that's been healthier. Because otherwise you can get very wrapped up very quickly in kind of the dizzying aspect of all of this new, beautiful, luxury, very distorted reality. Mm-hmm. Which most people, you know, I don't think most people change their fashion every six
0: months. Well, it's just that in technology that have that sort of forced obsolescence embedded in it, which is so hard to manage emotionally because you want to sort of be stylish or in style or have the latest, greatest, whatever. But that's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of consumption. I mean, the real hardcore fashion is for the very young who change their fashion
1: all the time and are trying to figure out who they are and are using style as a tool to do that or the very wealthy who can afford to do that for the vast majority of us. And the very skinny yes the the body that can handle that kind of change and couldn't afford to handle that kind of change the vast majority of us will buy a coat in 1990 <laughs> i'm looking at you i know, I know you still have a coat that i admire from 1990 <laughs> and keep it right and yeah. and so there has to, how do you bridge that continuity of self over year over year that's not something that you can sustain changing all the time, most of us. So then you have to develop your own personal taste, which I think gets back to my goal for all of us, which is like cultivate your own taste. Have confidence in what you like. Make your list. This is what I actually like so that you're not feeling swayed all the time or ins- or insufficient because you can't participate for whatever reason, money, age, body, any of those reasons. It helps to have a strong foundation and understand what you actually like. And then I think you should just totally lean into that. No trends, nothing. Find yourself and enjoy yourself with fashion. Um, That's the main, my main goal in life. Just have fun with it. Is to divorce it of its power over our minds, you know, and and, and to, to gain some control over that and say, like, I really love this. I love it the way I love this couch that I bought 25 years ago, and I keep recovering this couch. Well, you know what? I love this coat I bought in 1990, and I'm going to keep wearing it. You know, I think that that's really important both for the earth, for our minds, and for some, some
0: semblance of control over that industry. You said that we can't fix how anybody feels about their body, but we can disabuse people of the idea that certain styles are only for certain people. Do you think that designers are really paying more attention to that now? There was a moment
1: where I think we saw this little window open up and it seemed like that was going to be a priority. I've actually seen incredible backsliding in the last couple years. This season was abysmal Mm. for body inclusivity. You know, you'll have one or two people in each show and some, some brands are doing great. I should, you know, say that. But then I think you know, with the introduction of Ozempic, it's like everybody just gave up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean I, you know, it, it felt it felt I think very of it that way. Yeah, it felt like market change all of a sudden. And you know, fashion is cyclical and it's not that deep. As we would like it to be. So, you know, some of these changes that were kind of promising and exciting, we'll see if they stick. You
0: know? Well, Eve, you had a lot of ability to help reframe the way people think about style and beauty and size at the cut. Do you feel you're able to do that at the Times as well? The Times project is super different. You In know, what
1: way? Well, it's not a luxury sales project. Like, we're not making fashion shoots. We're not really telling people what to buy so much. I mean, there's Wirecutter, but we're not a luxury fashion magazine. We're a news organization. We're part of a news organization. I don't see my role as sorting through and telling people what to purchase. Mm. You know, even our critic, Vanessa Friedman, she's not doing that. We're not doing that. You know, we're, we're taking what's happening and we're explaining it to people. But we're not saying, you know, here's the 10 greatest coats you can buy right now. That is not part of the project. So it's really different. And I don't really even
0: see that as part of my job as much as it is to document what's happening in fashion right now. Right. You You know, it's as we've been talking, I realized what it was that I loved so much about your leadership at The Cut, which was I never came away from reading The Cut feeling bad about myself. And... I'm not really in the same position when I'm reading The Times because it is more journalistic and it's not as um, whimsical, I guess. But I hope that your voice can come through those pages as you continue to work there.
1: Well, I would certainly hope that you would never read the style section and feel worse for wanting to know about any of that information. That's important. And to treat the subject matter seriously, I think that's a big important characteristic of of the style section is that we take it seriously as they as seriously as anybody takes anything that they do there and but we also still have a lot of fun yeah yeah and I wouldn't want anyone to come away reading one of our stories feeling worse about themselves or bad for wanting to know about yeah. it and yeah. you know I think a lot of what we do actually is give per- people permission to enjoy the stuff that we're covering and within the context of the New York Times that's pretty important because there's a lot of very serious gut-wrenching stuff that happens in the sections other than mine. And that's okay to then turn to us and enjoy yourself over here. I think it's really important to say it's okay.
0: It's okay. Come on on
1: over here and enjoy
0: yourself. Yeah. So this is my last question. Um, You've had a long, illustrious, circuitous career, but you've also had some painful, harder times, and you've written about how when you look back, it looks like it was intentional, but you're old enough now to admit that that was not the case. It seems like it was premeditated, but it was all accidents the whole time. I think that's really um, helpful for people to hear as they're navigating their own ambition and their own career paths. It seemed like at the time you had no idea whether you would recover from the various obstacles in your path. How do you think you were able to overcome those obstacles? And what has it taught you about control?
1: Yeah, I have said that I felt like it was an accident. But actually, you know, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about in the last couple of years is that I looked at all these things as opportunities. So they felt accidental or they they felt like unexpected is maybe a better word. But I was always able to look at, each opportunity or each experience and say, well, this will complete a little puzzle piece that I'm missing. Mm. I don't know about fashion. Not really. Not at the level that Raul Martinez knows about it. What can I get by working with Raul Martinez? Like, that's the highest level, right? He's really good at it. (laughs) What will I learn from this man? And it wasn't necessarily clear to me what I would do with that, but I knew that it would give me this critical piece of knowledge and and a way of looking at the world. And the same for Adam and the same for Drew Hodges. Like I saw these people and these opportunities, not necessarily in a connected way that was obvious at the time, but that they each offered opportunity for growth and to complete a sort of thing I was lacking. And so I think that's how you know, in retrospect, it makes more sense to me. It's like, well, and I would hope that that's still the case. Like, I, I still sort of think of that. You know, I look at these incredible colleagues that I have and these people at The Times who've worked there for 35 years and just know so much. And I think like, well, what what does it feel like to put myself next to, to the people in this room and what can I learn from them? Um, so that's how it's made sense. It's less that oh, it's all been accidental and oops, here I landed here. It's more that um, if you see an opportunity or if you are given any opportunity, find the little core inside there that's going to give you the most knowledge that you can then take and apply to something else. Or try to find the thing within any experience that completes a missing part of your
0: education. Stella Bugbee, thank you so much for making so much work that matters. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. (laughs) It's been a pleasure. To see more about what Stella does, all you need to do is read the style section of the New York Times. This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
2: Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions.
0: The interviews are usually recorded at the Masters in Branding Program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyman.